Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Among the beach-dirty wannabes of South Beach walked a serial killer, police said, who murdered Gianni Versace in the front steps of his Mediterranean mansion. Uh, Mr. Versace, of course, one of the world's top fashion designers, whose designs are famous uh, in all the big fashion centers, such as Paris, Rome, and London. This was a single white male who approached uh, Mr. Versace as he was uh, about to enter the gates. Andrew Cunanan is now a target himself. Who is he? Welcome to Still Watching Versace, a podcast about the FX series American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair film critic uh, Richard Lawson. This week we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 3, A Random Killing, directed by Gwyneth Horder Payton and written by Tom Rob Smith. And later in the episode we will be joined by actress Judith Light. Before we get into running on the episode, though, Richard, I wanted to take your temperature generally on this, our first Versace-less episode. What did you think of this? I don't I, Like, when I was watching it, I was sort of surprised. It was my first sense that, okay, we might not, this might not be as versace a mm-hmm. show as I thought it was going to be. What did you think? Yeah, I think it's the first indication for an for the audience that hasn't you know gotten all, all screeners. So most people uh, that yeah, the show while Versace is in the title, uh, this is really about Andrew Cunanan, and um, it's also I think in the second episode does this a little bit too but it it really establishes the reverse chronology format of the show Mm -hmm. um you know obviously it begins with uh well we'll we'll get to that but like it 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 it, it flashes back in time within its own episode but it's also a flashback within the given kind of like scope of the whole series um which is interesting and i this is when i really kind of started perking up and and taking interest in the show really i mean i like the first two episodes but i think this this episode um, kind of announces a lot of the bigger themes of the series uh, in a really uh, painful uh, way. Yeah, we got uh, a tweet from a listener, you know, who is following along with the FX series and this podcast. And they were saying that the show is a little bit more like glitzy focus on Versace than they expected. And I sort of said, stick with it. I think at least through episode four. And if you're not enjoying what you're seeing through episode four, then you can make that decision. Then you can make the decision anytime, but I would, I Mm -hmm. would recommend, I don't think you'll really know what the show is until you get through episode four, which I think might be my favorite episode of the season so far. And, um, and so I, I like yeah it's it's a surprising turn but from for my taste not an unwelcome one um and uh, you know everyone is so good in this episode uh you know Judith Light Mike Farrell and uh, yeah it's 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 really fascinating to find out 
what this show is going to be. Uh, the, the other question, though, around that is, and this is something that I was discussing with a lot of other TV critics, uh, the way the show was marketed, I feel like the way the show was marketed is like the assassination of Johnny Versace. If there's less Versace going forward, um, is that, I, I don't want to call it false advertising it, but is it sort of like, um, I don't know, front loading with, with Versace and, and with this name that you know, in order to, uh, I don't want to say yeah. like lure or dupe, but just sort of convince audiences that they should be, paying attention to this story it is a little uh, yeah and i think that you know as the season goes on and you realize the scope of what cunanan did and you know it, that it was not just versace who was murdered in this murder spree um it in some ways diminishes those other deaths maybe um at the same time if you put the name andrew cunanan in a series title is it going to get as many views or you know i think that when the casting was being announced of course everyone was excited about penelope cruz and edgar ramirez and um you know i think that uh yeah i understand that you know tv is tv and a business is a business and they have to kind of get butts and seats or you know or eyeballs on the screen uh in, in whatever way they can i just don't know for our purposes if the title um really properly addresses what the show's about yeah, when when asked about this at the TV Critics Association Winter Press Tour, Tom Rob Smith, who wrote all the episodes, said, pointing out that OJ wasn't really the point of the People versus OJ Simpson. And, you know, I, I think that's fair. <laughs> like, you put OJ Simpson's name in there, but it's because you don't want to call it, like, the Marsha Clark story or whatever. So, um Right. Yeah, so you know, we'll we'll see we'll see how how audiences react. I'm really excited uh for the direction in which the show goes from here on out and that's what we're going to talk about today. Before we get into that though, we also wanted to bring up an article that one of our listeners sent our way uh over it's over on slate.com. It's called The Deracination of Andrew Cunanan written by written by Inku King and uh this is this is a great piece where she you know, Andrew Cunanan was a half is a Filipino American, Filipino Italian American, um, and Darren Chris is also um, half Filipino, and so this is a sort of an interrogation where Inku in, in, interviewed, I think it was eight sort of Filipino scholars about whether or not the treatment of Andrew's race as well as his homosexuality um, was explored in, in the depth that certain people would like to see it explored in this series. Um, it's, it's hard to really, I think fully assess this at this point, which I think the article, this slate.com article itself addresses because um, Andrew's race is a point of discussion of the show. It's not a point of discussion in the early episodes of the show. And I do think that's kind of reflective of the way in which Andrew himself sort of threw off his identity. Uh, he would sometimes claim to be Italian-American. He would claim all these other things. Like, he himself wasn't fully comfortable with his own Asian identity. And so, you know, that's why the Andrew we meet later is not really uh, interacting himself with his own um, Asian identity. But one thing she writes here is she says that the assassination of Johnny Versace feels urgent as it revisits the stifling homophobia of the 90s. It's far less successful in reimagining Cunanan from a racialized point of view, at least in the first eight episodes. Uh, Richard, I was wondering if you had had any thoughts either while watching this or reading this article about um, how the show's treatment of race. Yeah, I mean, she brings up interesting points and, you know, you know, if you look at my own review, I don't really get into that at all. Uh, and so that's probably my failing, but it could also be reflective of the show, not highlighting it um, enough that a critic like me would, would, would pick up on it. You know, there are obviously uh, a few moments to come an entire episode, arguably also uh, that grapples more with um, his Filipino identity and uh, with his family background. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's, it seems apparent that um you know, this, the writers or the writer, uh, that Tom Rob Smith, uh, set out with a lot more interest in the gay aspect of things. And probably because that's what he relates to. He's a white British man, um, but is also gay. And, uh, and I, you know, is that fair? I don't know, but, uh, I guess that Inku's point and, and it's well made is that it doesn't tell as full a story as it could had, um, Cunanan's race 
uh, been also brought to bear in a more, uh, well, earlier in the show, show and in a more thorough way. I think an opportunity the show could have had to uh, explore that earlier in the season would be to dive in a little bit more to the media's treatment of the case, which yeah. I don't know that the show does as much as I expected it to. Uh, I don't think it gets to it too much in the first two episodes, which take place in Miami. And, um, and we haven't seen the finale because they haven't released that, uh, episode. And so it's possible that that's what the finale is all about. And I, you know, I will be speaking out of turn here. But uh, the way in which the media sort of misdiagnosed Andrew as HIV positive when he wasn't like all the mistakes that the media made, uh, which even as a member of the media, I would like to see explored. Um, is there isn't much time for that so far in the series of the episodes we've seen. So that that's a way in which I think um Andrew's racialized identity, even as he has abandoned it, the way in which uh, it was talked about either in the media or from the police, yeah. um, that sort of thing. So, Yeah, and I think that what the show has in its favor on this uh, particular point, which um, is, a, is a big one, um, is that, like you said, that Cunanan himself was subverting his identity a lot, was kind of um, masking it in whatever way he could and so when it is finally bluntly brought up in a kind of weirdly darkly comical scene but also you know like so many in this show a sad one uh but that we'll talk about in the future like it, it's it's startling and you're like oh right of course like that's also a part of who he was and i think that maybe that's deliberate on the show's part to kind of tease that out in a way but um you know because if, if cunanan himself wasn't kind of constantly uh referencing uh that he was half filipino um would it make any sense if the show was, you know? Yeah. And, um, it's something that actually an FX publicist pointed out to me that I didn't realize at all, uh, and think about it all until last week is that, um, they have all, you know, Latinx or Hispanic actors playing all their Italian roles. Um, which is, I don't know, not something that we ever think of as inappropriate, but just something that I hadn't even, hadn't even occurred to me in terms of racial representation on the show. So um, yeah. that's, that's something from Inku. I, I look forward to seeing more of what she writes about, uh, especially that, you know, lack, that second to last uh, episode of the season, which we will talk about in the weeks to come. But for now, we are going to talk about uh, this episode called A Random Killing, which is taken from a line uh, that the character Marilyn Miglin, as played by Judith Light, says about the death of Lee Miglin, who was the third person that Andrew Kinnanen killed. And this whole episode takes place uh, two months before the death of Johnny Versace. So as Richard said already, we're, we're hopping back in time and seeing what led Andrew um, on his path to Versace's doorstep. So we start with, with Marilyn Miglin, played by Judith Light, under pounds of makeup. Amazing. She looks amazing. Uh, mm -hmm. As this like home shopping network queen, as Marilyn Miglin actually was. Um, and what, like, what did you think of this opener as we start with a character we've never seen sort of giving a spiel on the home shopping network? Did you have any thoughts when you first I was, thought? I was confused because, um, unlike you and, um, some other co coworkers of ours, like, I hadn't read the book. Right. And, uh, so I didn't really know the story. I'd maybe, like, read the Wikipedia, you know, timeline of events or something, but I really had not put together who Lee Miglin was and who his wife was. So I was pretty, confused for this whole segment and then gradually of course like figured out oh i see um and i think this also was kind of when i realized that the show was going to be going backwards and so just getting used to that pacing like you said he's the Mig lee miglin was the third person andrew killed but the second one we see him kill on the show right we're gonna see him you know? kill one other person before the episode's over it's this is yeah. yeah this is where i realized how closely you need to be paying attention to the title cards that tell you where and when you are uh yeah, yeah. so that's sort of why we're trying to do this on the podcast being like where are we it's may 1997 yeah. we started the home shopping network then we go to chicago and that's where andrew is that's where the uh, most of the action of this episode takes place but yeah yeah um the the Miglin of it all this this was something to note and, and you know we can get into this a little bit more in the episode but something to note is that like Andrew started by killing people who were close to him but people who were relatively anonymous otherwise um when he killed Lee Miglin that's when because Lee Miglin was you know something of a figure in Chicago uh that's when this murder spree 
caught more attention. And then Gianni Versace is sort of the ultimate of that. That's when it catches like national, really national attention is the death of Gianni Versace. But he's sort of like ramping up in, in fame wise as he works his way, uh, through his victims. But we get to know the Miglins. I thought it was a really fascinating choice. I mean, Judith Light is a, is a great choice. Judith Light, who, you know, TV lovers might know from Ugly Betty, who's the boss or transparent, uh, Broadway lovers know from like two Tony Award winning performance performances. So like she's she's a great she's such a Ryan Murphy actress that it like mm-hmm. I, it took surprised me that it took her this long uh to be in a Ryan Murphy show. But casting Mike Farrell of like MASH fame as Lee Miglin, you have these like two TV veterans. Uh, yeah. There's something about the casting that just really nails it for me in this episode well i think it's partly that they're so beloved and familiar i mean mike farrell maybe less so than judith light at this point but um but you know he's familiar and um we've seen them in you know comedies and sitcoms and things like that and um to then have them in this really sad story about secrets and lies and you know eventually murder uh it's jarring um but they both play it so well and and i think that something that this show um does you know better than others is that they have these one-off you know guest star actors should come on for an episode and they just really nail it they, there's a kind of deep commitment and it makes every episode feel a bit like a mini movie and um this is the real first real example of that and it's it's just i think it's really well done and i think farrell in particular um is is really strong on the episode well, yeah, two things I want to say. First of all, when I was at, when I was at the TV Critics Association press tour earlier this month, there was an FX party. So there was like a bunch of famous mm-hmm. actors who are on FX shows. And the one, the actor that the TV critics that I know geeked out over most was Mike Farrell. Mike Farrell walks by and these TV critics are like, Oh my God, it's Mike Farrell from MASH. Uh, and it was just, it was really charming because there were like Oscar winners in the room and they were like freaking right. out over Mike Farrell. But anyway, um, I, so I think he is, he's brilliant casting for, you know, you wouldn't expect, uh, this icon of, um, you know, 70s TV to maybe be playing this like deeply tragic closeted figure. But, um, the other thing you say, it's like a mini movie. It's so funny. This episode struck me. And I mean this in the most complimentary way, almost as an episode of Law and Order, like complete with the cold open discovery of the body. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but it, but I think, you know, this is probably because it's the most self-contained episode. Um, this is the most Law and Order episode. And, you know, Marilyn comes home. Lee was not there to pick her up at the airport. We see the house is abandoned. There's weird evidence everywhere. She's got a weird feeling. And then it ends with this great Judith Light uh, line reading of I knew it. Um, yeah. Which is so loaded, uh, has many different potential meanings. Um, but you know. yeah, it's a really interesting sequence because even when she's in the the taxi home from the airport, when he was supposed to have picked her up, she knows that something's wrong. Right. And so then we see this long kind of sequence in which, you know, she enters the house, gets freaked out, leaves, neighbors come in, the police come. And, and then, you know, all this has happened. And then when she says that I knew it, it's it basically she's answering herself in the car on the way home, you know. Um, so it kind of provides this little bow. It ties everything together really well. It's just very, I think it's it's very creepily staged. Um, but I, I'm, I'm glad that they did that as an introduction to the episode versus just starting, you know, um, the, a week earlier, which they then jumped to. I think right. it's an interesting way to to kind of bring us into the story. Absolutely, and it's um the the double entendre there possibly is like this thing that Marilyn ex- suspects or denies to herself about her husband and his sexuality mm-hmm. and what's real about him, and like we don't know yet that that's why he died, but but that's you know that's a part of the episode, and this is probably where we should say that. The Miglins to this day, Marilyn and her son Duke, uh, deny that Lee was gay, deny that Lee knew Andrew Cunanan. So this is a case of the show taking some evidence from the crime scene, which we can – real evidence from the crime scene that we can get into um, and, and, you know, making its – making a choice, saying – it seems clear to us, the makers of American Crime Story, the assassination of Johnny Versace, that Lee Miglin 
A was gay and B knew Andrew Kanan. It's a, it's a conclusion that Maureen Orth also came to in her book, but it, it, it goes against what the Miglins would like the public to believe about Lee. And I was wondering what? if you had, had any thoughts about that. Well, what did, um, how did Orth come to those conclusions? I mean, was there more evidence beyond, like, I don't know, the stuff in the house or? So there's the crime scene, yeah, all the crime scene evidence, but then there's also, um, it's like rumors. um, Oh, okay. But also this idea that something to do with the way in which one of the main clients of an escort service that Andrew Cannon was linked with ha- had to do with the home shopping network. It was like a connection between the home shopping network and that sort of thing. But, but there mm-hmm. is no hard and fast evidence that a Lee Miglin knew Andrew Cannon, though he very likely did. Um, and then I think, you know, the police suspected he did and all of that. Um, and, and B that Lee Miglin was gay at all. And so this is in a sense, um, you know, outing a man, I guess, um, or, or deciding, you know, that this is probably the case. Um, yeah. W- once again, you know, as with, you know, we discussed this last week, as with the sort of AIDS diagnosis of Johnny Versace, which is against the family's wishes, um, this, both this episode and that episode are seeing no shame in, in saying this. It's not like they're, you know, I don't know, outing Lee Minglin to shame him or something like that. Um, in fact, it's a tremendously sympathetic portrayal of this man, right? Um, but it is a choice, right? Yeah, it is. It's sympathetic. I think it's. Um, I don't know. It's 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 hard to assess like whether or not it's the moral ethical thing to do if the family objects to it, you know. Um, but I think as a piece of narr- you know, as a piece of storytelling, um, it's a really compelling episode that. And and with the, the Midland stuff in particular, it says a lot about what we think that the central theses of the show are, uh, particularly the kind of the damages of the closet, the, of living in the closet, the pains of it, um, and how that the the interaction between men who are or women who are more out and and those who aren't how that can be kind of perverted or it can be exploited or it causes anger or you know and i think that clearly we see later in the episode when cunanan goes about killing lee miglin uh that he is furious at him and are we is he really talking to lee at that point or is he talking to some bigger ideal i don't know and so i think that you know the the episode where it's just a random home invasion robbery murder thing um doesn't really tell us anything more about the the world that uh, the show is trying to um, like illuminate for us. Right. Exactly. Um, So as you say, we jump a week earlier, we get this political fundraiser where Lee and Marilyn are there. And this I think is to help establish their standing in the community that they're, you know, movers and shakers, uh, bootstrap American dream entrepreneurs, all of this sort of stuff that, but they have this very, um, you know, precious image that they project and that's very important to them and when we get back home i think that's underlined by this when it comes back home and you see marilyn take all of her makeup off in a like the use of makeup on marilyn miglin in this episode is Mm -hmm. incredible um you see her take sort of this mask off um lee gets a call it's andrew but you know marilyn's like who's that he's like no one he has an ominous feeling she asked him to go with her on a trip you know all of that stuff happens but it's i just feel like so immediately we have a sense of who these people are as in any good episode of law and order (laughs) you need to know like Mm -hmm. right away who you're talking about so um yeah yeah i mean and and they they establish they tell a lot of story with only a few scenes you know Mm -hmm. um you know they they manage to get a lot of exposition in be about in the form of a speech where marilyn is um introducing her husband at a political fundraiser and so we get his backstory through there so that's clever and you know there are just little ways that um that they that that they find uh to to tell us a lot about these people with within only a few scenes and and um that's hard to do uh and we really care for both of them uh, in a way but also you know find uh things frustrating about them uh you know in, in an episode that's only 40 something minutes long and they're not even in all of uh that's that's impressive 
Yeah, the 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 trick they do with Marilyn is on her home shopping network intro. She's also giving her backstory. It's yeah. it's mm-hmm. very nimbly done. It's very smart. Um, <clears throat> we see Lee. You know, after after Marilyn leaves and he's home alone and he's, I guess, getting ready for his date. We see him listening to Astro Gilberto dabbing on some of her perfume. Um, and then we get this really sort of anguished scene of him at this weird Catholic altar that they have in their basement, talking about how he he wants to be good. Um, and this is really the overt, uh, the show overtly engaging in that damage of the closet um, theme. And just even when he's done with that and he's about to answer the door, he just heaves this heavy sigh. Like, obviously, he wants to see Andrew, but he's just like, it's just so much conflict. And Mike Farrell, I think, is so good in this. What did you think of this sequence? Yeah, no, he he is good. And 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 there's a... It is interesting, the pained way that he approaches all of this. Like, he wants him to come over. He wants to do what they're going to do. But there's this resignation, this kind of sigh of of anguish um undercutting all of it um uh, which only adds to the sadness um and you know one could say that it's maybe laying it on too thick or we've seen this kind of closeted older man stuff but powerful older man stuff before but but you know uh especially uh you know t- 20 years ago and and past that and still now I'm sure of course um that that is a facet of some people's of, of of the gay world you know that that uh that there are these people who are living these lives of kind of quiet angu- anguish and someone like and 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 through all that sort of furtive um you know dealing where they can't be out and open and 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 they they meet people like andrew people who are even further on the fringes in, in their own way uh and it exposes them i think to um bad stuff sometimes because if you're living life in secret uh you have to do it in in darker places you know yeah, later in the episode, Marilyn, when talking to the police, she says, you know, my, my husband was home alone. He was vulnerable. He's older. He has a hearing aid. Like she's talking about all the ways in which he was a vulnerable target. But you're right. Like this, this is the way in which he was a very vulnerable target. Um, in his, uh, in at least this fictionalized version of Lee in his, uh, quiet desperation for companionship or, you know, sexual, um, relationship that is actually his preference, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and then we get this other theme of the season um, that the creators of the show have talked about a lot. They talk about, well, one of the episodes of the season is called creator destroyer. And if, you know, Johnny Versace as a, as a fashion designer is, is definitely a creator, but so too is Lee Miglin. And that's something that they take mm-hmm. a beat to show us that Lee is, you know, he's a, he's a real estate developer. He, 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 um, wants to design the tallest building in Chicago. And he talks about his dream of that. And, you know, here we've got Andrew. Andrew is constantly, whether we see him or not, eating and devouring in this episode. And you've got like the ham and the ice cream and this sandwich that he just like wolfs down. And so we've got Andrew as like devourer and destroyer. um, And you've got Lee as as aspirational creator and and humble aspirational creator. He doesn't want to name the tower after himself. It's not about himself. It's about, you know, making something worthwhile. Um, And I just. But as Andrew points out, as Andrew points out, like, it's not all that humble, you know. Sure. Uh, the thing yeah. about it being taller than the Sears Tower, and, you, and like completely like putting them out of business, and you know, he says, "I hadn't thought about that," and he's like, and Andrew says, "Of course you did." Right. Um. You know, I, I think that there is this is the show talking to us more less than maybe Andrew Cannon, uh, about its notions about wealth and power that you know obviously, um, were what drew uh. And not just to Versace, but to a lot of people in his life that that, that formed the basis of his aspiration, right? Um. But here we see him have this moment of disgust for it and the kind of uh, the tales that that the wealthy and the powerful tell tell themselves to kind of, um, you know, exonerate themselves from being, you know, amoral kind of <laughs> capitalists who who only care about themselves, um, which, you know, to me was a little on the nose. Uh, I think there are subtler moments on this show, but mm-hmm. it's not really a subtle show in general. So I didn't really mind it, <laughs> right. you know. Yeah. And, and you also... I, I think that's so so correct, Richard, that like Andrew is c- correctly assessing Lee and interrogating his um his own myth. And then but then you have Andrew sort of talking about um how he could almost be a husband to Lee, how he could almost be th- this is a, such a strong thing about Andrew is like 
he's like, I'm more than just a hustler. Like I'm more than just mm-hmm. a prostitute. Like I'm educated and I can, you know, talking about passing, like Andrew, Andrew feels like he, he deserves to be the husband of a, of a prominent, you know, Chicago social climber sort of person. And, um, I, I really like the way that Darren Chris plays this scene and this engagement. You're right. It's not like, the most subtle thing I've ever seen in my life, but, but there, the, the ways in which Lee is talking about his aspirations and dreams so overtly and Andrew's talking about his aspirations and dreams so overtly and they're both talking about fantasy could have been awful. And somehow it's just mesmerizing, especially, you know, for those of us who know what's coming next, you know? Yeah. And again, Farrell is really good in the scene where, you know, his face falls a bit when Andrew starts being sort of mean or kind of laying it out uh, as it is. And um, and and yet he understands it. And he uh, that same look of resignation crosses his face. And he says, you know, you could pretend to. Um, uh, and or he says, you know, we don't have to talk. You know, we can implying that it, they could just, you know, have sex or whatever. But right. um, and, you know, so he, it it's just a sad look at how, how much he's willing to take. Like, you know, you wouldn't accept that kind of berating from just a date. Right. You know, you would, you would say, well, you know, go home. Like, you know, why are you being such an asshole to me? But in this case, this is a different arrangement. And so it shows what Miglin had to sort of accept or this version of Miglin and people like him, uh, sometimes have to accept in order to fulfill something that they want, uh, or, or need. Yeah. And, um, then it gets, it goes really, really bad, really fast. Yeah. Um, where we go into the garage, and this is where you know those of us watching the show who are are unfamiliar um, with the case uh, uh, sort of understand why we saw Andrew Kinnanen taping up faces in Miami because apparently this is a thing for him. Uh, he tapes up Lee's face. He like breaks his nose, and then he just like brutalizes him. And and I think this is well. We'll get to Jeff Trail, but this this is one of the most brutal um, murders. I think not just because of like what he physically does to Lee, but also just the way in which he treats the house. It's just creepy and um, you know, yeah, deeply disturbing. But so it, it, if it's true, if we want to accept the show's thesis that Lee Miglin was a closeted. Um, Per, but you know closeted person um and if that if it's true that maybe that frustrated andrew Kinnanen, then the way in which he stages the murder where he leaves this pornographic material around lee and part leaves him partially undressed and all of that um is in itself an outing you know he he wants to out and or humiliate either humiliate or reveal the truth of Lee um, in the way in which he killed him, uh, I think is, is the statement the show is trying to make um, whether or not that that's what's actually happened. We will never know, but yeah. And, you know, uh, I think it's also, you know, there is an anger there that, that Keenan has that um, gay people like myself could, probably relate to in some way i i get frustrated by people who are in the closet when particularly powerful people not people who are staying in the closet because of their safety or something like that of course not but but you know the 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 rich and powerful who sort of live these private lives but then publicly you know either tacitly or vocally uh speak out against uh gay people um that's that's frustrating there is absolutely an anger there but um you know the the show is quick to both identify with that, but then also show how nearly immediately after Andrew is swanning around the house, driving the Lexus, all this stuff he, that, that, that this life that he's kind of supposedly condemning, he's actually what he wants, you know? So it's a really conflicted um, ideology. Yeah. And, and in that swanning, he uh, like just plops a ham on top of those, you know, tower plans that we saw earlier. And it's just, it's the most, I mean, Killing someone is probably the most disrespectful thing you can do to them, but like that, there's something just so disrespectful uh, about that ham placement, mm-hmm. um, which is you know true. This is a true thing. They did find a half-eaten ham uh, in the study, so um, 
<clears throat> and Andrew stayed there, like with the dead body in the garage. He stayed there until he knew Marilyn was coming home, and then he left. This is all true things that Andrew did. He he shaved in the bathroom, like not in the show, but in real life. Like he, you know, he cleaned himself mm-hmm. up. He stole clothing. He stole gold coin that he later pawned in Miami, um, which we saw happen on the show already. And he really did in real life sell that coin to Kathy Moriarty. Yeah, it was she, actually she was working. She was working. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> working down in Miami at the time. Yeah. Um, and then, and then we see Marilyn Miglin talking to the Chicago PD, and this is where we understand that maybe if there were other elements of the Lee Miglin crime scene that didn't make it into the media or wasn't reported, we could see maybe why because Marilyn like knows the police force, and mm-hmm. so if there, this is a way in which, um. I think the Miglin case, the Miglin part of the case is held up as a way in which people's inability to grapple with homosexuality, specifically Marilyn's inability to grapple with her own husband's homosexuality, could be one of the reasons why Andrew Kinnan was able to escape and ultimately murder Gianni Versace. Like, if Marilyn had said, yes, my husband's gay, I knew it all along – you know, let's check into what escort services he might have been using or something, you know, like something mm-hmm. like that. If indeed, you know, she was concealing something, this is a place in which if she had shared more, perhaps uh, Andrew could have been stopped earlier, you know. Um, yeah. And she's she is emphatic and says this is just a random killing, which gives uh, the episode its title, obviously. Yeah. And... And were it not for a police officer seeing the car with Minnesota plates and sort of thinking, well, that seems odd and, and you know, calling in the plate p- plate numbers and, you know, th- th- who, who knows how long that really took, you know, so uh, they eventually did tie it to him, obviously, but it, it maybe took longer than it needed to. Right, exactly. Um, and then, uh, you know, just just a fun fact that Marilyn Lee's son is named Duke and he was an Air Force one. So, you know, if you want to yeah. explore more of the Miglin family, that is one place where you can find them. Um, but yeah, the, the Chicago PD makes the, uh, great discovery that they can track Andrew Kananen via cell phone in Lee's car. Um, we called it a car phone back then. Yes, a car phone. <laughs> Um, they were. My mom had one. It was very big deal. My dad did too. It was enormous. Um, (laughs) and that's how they know that Andrew went to New York, which he actually did. We don't know whether or not he went to a Versace store, but Andrew Kinnanen did go from Chicago to New York. Uh, in in the show, we see him sort of wandering around this this store, gazing at these items, picking up a book on South Beach, sort of putting the pieces together of where he might go next. Uh, but we have no idea what Andrew was actually doing in New York. Um, and then this is another mistake either the police made or the media made, however you want to decide. But the the information about the car phone leaked to the media. Andrew heard it. And he tried to rip out the connective, uh, you know, wiring to make sure that he would not be tracked. That is a true thing that actually happened. And that's what leads to Andrew Kinnanen's fourth murder. But the third murder we see in the show, which is, um, of William Reese in New Jersey, uh, where he just needs a car. And this is, in fact, the random killing of the episode. It's the only, I would say, the only random killing in Andrew's, uh, spree. Right. And what did you think of? I think that, which is clever. I mean, that's like, yeah. you know, for the episode title being that and, and, and yeah, you know, we do, we see he just, well, he picks one person out of the parking lot and then, she, you know, she's kind of fumbling with her keys, but then someone else comes out of the store and, you know, so we see actually how uh, indeed random and arbitrary it was. Um, and the episode, the show doesn't really take its time with this. It, it, it's pretty quick. Um, you know, he takes him down to the basement and shoots him. Um, in that little bit, it affords it affords him humanity. Um, in in just in that little bit, a couple scenes, it does the show does afford William Reese a certain degree of humanity, and you know we we find out he has a kid, um, and, and a wife, and and uh, you know, so the show is not uh lurid really, or or um having fun with any of this, and I think that that's important. The the show, I despite maybe its sort of flashy visual aesthetic. Um, textually, it's still dark and I think respectful. I don't know. I mean, again, like you said about Lee Miglin and the, the Miglin family now not wanting, you know, the, 
Lee to be called gay in any way. Uh, maybe that is disrespectful, but I think within the context of the story the show is, you know, depicting, uh, it treats its characters with a lot of humanity that um, I think uh, I didn't really expect from something produced by Ryan Murphy, but I guess I should have based on uh, OJ last uh, two years ago. Yeah, and the Maureen, Maureen Norris book has a similar treatment of William Reese where it is a random killing. And I think you could just easily have like one page where you're like, and then Andrew needed a car. So he killed this guy, but Maureen, you know, interviews all the people who knew William Reese and does a really, uh, I think compelling biographical sketch of him so that you really do understand the, you know, just sad futility of his death. Like here's a lovely man who had nothing, who really did have nothing to do with Andrew Cunanan. And, um, you know, murdered because if you want to say because the police and the media messed up or, you know, whoever, however you want to pin it or Andrew Cannon is a monster, whatever you want to say. Um, but you know, this, this is like a, a tragic part of this spree. Um, even if it doesn't fit the pattern, uh, that we see elsewhere for him. You know, yeah. and, and before we got to the death of William Reese, there was just this stunning scene for Judith Light. It's like, <laughs> um, you know, she's great in everything she does always. But if, you know, she wants to submit some kind of reel for her Emmy, her guest role Emmy next year, uh, this would be the one where we again see Marilyn Miglin in front of the mirror putting makeup on. And then we see her just like smearing it off and crying and just like, I mean, it is... It is, you know, everything Jessica Lange has ever done for Ryan Murphy times 100. Judith Light is incredible talking about never saying it, but basically saying, even if my husband was gay, what we had was real. And how can you call it a sham? And like, there's a different kind of love and there's different kind of support. And mm -hmm. like her having to confront without actually confronting, um, you know, the the lie at the center of, of her marriage, I thought was really powerful. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, again, the show's not subtle. Uh, but I, in in its proportions, this scene is, is, is good. It fits and, and light is great. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a it's a different angle on the same topic and that, you know, the closet does not just harm the person who's closeted. Obviously there are other people involved if, if they involve a, a, a wife or a, a husband, if it's a woman, you know, uh, or whoever, uh, there's collateral damage. And, um, I think the show illustrates that. Well, uh, I'm glad that it doesn't overstate, uh, Miglin's presence at Marilyn Miglin's presence in this whole story. This is just her only episode. We will not see her again. Um, I don't think anyway. Um, and, but, but they gave her ample room to state her case and to state the case for, um, her husband. And, and I think that that, uh, uh, is fair and thorough. And, um, I'm glad that, uh, the, the, that Tom Rob Smith was, was, and, and the producers were, um, smart enough to, to figure out what needed a whole episode devoted to it. And this definitely did. And the last shot we get is a bookend of, of her opening on the Home Shopping Network. She's back. Marilyn's back at the Home Shopping Network. Um, she calls, you know, the host of the, of the show calls it a random act of violence. Once again, that's a descriptor of William Reese's death, not, uh, Lee Miglin's. And then Marilyn says they killed my husband for a car. Once again, that's Lee Miglin. That's real William Reese's death, not Lee Miglin's. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and then she's got this great line about considering the red light in the camera, you know, as the man you love or whatever. And then we cut to black. A uh, great, great episode for everyone involved, I think, in a really good uh, indication of, of where this show is going next. Uh, yeah. Did you have any, any further thoughts on, on the episode? Um, no, I mean, I think uh, it said most of it, but I think that, that in terms of being uh, setting a tone, uh, people <laughs> watching along should be prepared themselves that the next two episodes are really rough. Um, I think in you terms said of that last week. <laughs> yeah, everything's rough. This show, I mean, I, I rewatched this episode before we recorded, and I was just like, oh man, the minute you see uh, Mike Farrell come on screen, he he just seems so kindly, and, and you know, yeah. the whole thing is sad. But um, again, I think it's not overbearingly so. Um, I think it 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 mixes all that sadness with you know, some social commentary and some political commentary and uh, like a, a really grim ribbon of dark humor. And, and, you know, so, so it's not, it's not oppressive this show, but man, it's, uh, it's not a romp, you know, it may be sometimes when Penelope Cruz is on screen, but not, you know, especially in a Versace episode, it's, it's tough. Yeah. 
Well, I, I agree with Richard. The The fourth episode is um, one of the hardest to watch, but it's also my favorite. So uh, I encourage you guys all to watch it and stick with us. Uh, before we go today, we are going to have a nice chat with actress Judith Light. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo. Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. by actress Judith Light to discuss American Crime Story, The Assassination of Johnny Versace. Judith, thank you so much for joining us. I'm delighted to talk to you. Well, I just wanted to start. Um, I, I love your performance so much. And, you know, without spoiling too much about the nature of this show, this is, I think, a one-off, a one-episode performance. And I'm curious, what are some of the challenges of only having one episode to really give us a whole arc of a character. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for your very kind comments. I appreciate them very much. Um, and I would say it <clears throat> it is a one-off. I don't want to lead people on or make them wonder. It is just a portion of a story that leads to um, the the culmination in the killing of Johnny Versace. So it's part of this um, map, this landscape of a trajectory trajectory of Andrew Cunanand. Um, I have to say that Tom Robb Smith, who wrote um, all of the episodes, wrote it so well and it was so well directed by uh, Gwyneth Horder Payton that the you and and I had somebody to act opposite, which is Mike Farrell, that you're able to really tell the story in one episode of what happens in relation to these people and how it affects the rest of the story. So it's not impossible to or challenging. It's really just one story. So it's it's contained unto itself. There's this really stunning moment at the top of the hour after Lee's body has been discovered and you just hear a faint scream in the background and then you see you as Marilyn sort of say with conviction, like, I knew it. And I was just, I, I was wondering what, you, what that line reading means to you uh, when you performed it. Well, you, you see that the, the house is empty when she comes home. She's been away on a business trip and she comes home and things are in complete disarray in the house and she knows that something terrible has happened. And so when the scream happens, it verifies her own fears of something has taken place. And also there's a scene prior to that where um, Lee, her husband has said to her, don't go. And it's, it's mildly ominous and she has a feeling that something is off, something is wrong, and she goes anyway. So it's a combination of all of those fears all at one time. Were you were you able or, or inclined to study, you know, archival footage of the real Marilyn on, on the Home Shopping Network or, or QVC or elsewhere? No, no, I didn't want to do that. I think we have to be very um, appropriate and deferential and to um, people who are are living and are still dealing with this um, um, tragedy. And also, um, because, as I said before, it was written so well that it, I, was, I, I was informed of who she was. I was given the map of who she was. And I, I, I think we have to be very careful about that. I've played living people before, and I've always been um, careful about not having that in my head, I, I'm creating a character. I'm creating something that is well written um, and had uh, all the advantages of knowing all of the information. That's um, 
what, one thing that's really interesting, though, of your uh, look as Marilyn is when I first saw the episode, I thought perhaps the makeup had been exaggerated a bit. But then I looked and I was like, no, that is how Marilyn prefers to wear her makeup. I went in for a full day of costumes and the costumes were amazing. I mean, they built some of those costumes in, in, in record time. And we had um, makeup tests and even down to the nails. I mean, everything was so specific. And, you know, you talk about uh, throughout this process, everyone that I've talked to has talked about the real life subjects they're playing with a great deal of respect, as you just did with Marilyn. But the, you know, the truth is that the, the Miglin family has strenuously denied that Lee was gay or that he knew Andrew Cadenna. And as, as you depict in this episode, you know, how do you then handle sort of contradicting that statement, that wish in the context of the episode? I don't contradict it. I, it's not, that's not my business. That's, you know, for other people to talk about and to discuss. Um, you know, I, I was hired to play this character and it's perfectly laid out on the page the way it comes about and who the dynamics of this person in this family are, um, psychologically and the depth of them. Um, I, I literally work from the script that I'm given. And I think it's very, um, 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 I would never, ever add anything to a dynamic of people who are suffering through a tragedy. How aware were you of uh, either the Miglin aspect or the larger Kunana and Versace case before uh, you came on board this project. I, I I knew my parents lived in Pompano Beach, Florida, and so I was there a lot. And I was in Miami, and I knew about um, uh, the Cunanan murder of Versace, but I didn't know about the Miglins beforehand. I didn't know anything, uh, and so this was all news to me. I mean, I had heard that there were other people once they had you know, discovered uh, who this was. And I heard some of the story at that there had been prior murders um, to the Versace killing, but I didn't know about them and didn't know of them uh, at all. And um, this was very surprising to me to find out. What was your research process like then? Is it, does it all come from Tom Rob Smith's great work on the page? You just need to see it all laid out there or did you do some sort of factual research to go along with it? Well, I mean, we knew that it was taken from the book and so I read the book and that was, that was that was really helpful, and I had very little time because this happened very quickly, and I had to change a whole bunch of my schedule, so I didn't have a lot of time to do a lot of research, but when you look at the script, and as you're seeing in all of the, every one of these scripts, it's so brilliantly and beautifully laid out, articulated. It's what, I, the word that keeps coming up for me about it is this landscape. Um, that in our episode that Tom Rob Smith created, and it's like it's a roadmap, it's a way through. And so um, sometimes you have to do a lot of research, um, but also I have been for many, many years since the early 80s um, an advocate for the LGBTQ community, so I was very privy to, you know, not privy, but informed about what was happening in the gay community at the height of the AIDS pandemic and the the level of homophobia that is found in our culture still to this day. And I think the, the, the brilliance of Ryan Murphy wanting to do this story was to show how um, homophobia played such um, a vital piece. How, uh, you can see how uh, the homophobia and the, uh, the, um, the underground, um, and what might have pushed this young man to end up killing Versace as well as other people um, because of what was happening in the culture at the time. So I knew a lot of, of about that. I, am, I have been fascinated so far with this series, watching a younger audience that maybe is not aware of how deep the closet was so recently. Oh my God, that's so fabulous that you saw that. 
they're they're realizing and as as they watch this um and hopefully as the series goes on um i think there is just uh, the same thing happened i think with american crime story the pre- the people versus oj it's just sort of there's a recent history that is not known to even just a slightly younger audience and i'm really impressed with the way that this series lays it out in such a compelling and gross i'm very excited about what you're saying go go ahead yeah it's great i mean was that at all i mean you you know you you just talked about your own advocacy since since the 80s but was that at all something you guys talked about on set sort of being able to give a recent history lesson or is that just a a, you know fortuitous byproduct of of this great story i no, we never talked about it on set that was not something that we talked about but uh, i mean uh, at the at the premiere party, Ryan talked about um, his how the story had compelled him, and that part of the story was the um, not to be didactic or you know educational, but to tell people what was actually going on and how the culture um, so needed to present. Um, how, how this, how this piece presents how the culture and what was happening in the culture and in our world, um, in our country and all around the world. And to this day, that homophobia is still a major issue in the way that com- the LGBTQ community, which is so startlingly brave and strong and powerful and contains great leadership. Um, within it was vilified and um, discounted and dismissed. And uh, so I don't know that it was like, oh, here's your history lesson, uh, young people. But there was a drive to let people know. And I think that when you have something as important as this, um, as this story and the way the culture uh, feeds it, um, I, I think that if, as we say, if you, if you do not know your history, you are destined to repeat it. And that's the, um, that kind of, um, remarkable context out of which Ryan Murphy works and, uh, teaches like without being pedantic in any way. And, uh, I, I think we have to wake up to these stories and to remind young people that these things happened and that they're still going on today. And how do we relate to them now in this situation, in our present world, um, coming from being educated about our past world? I love it. I've, I've heard Ryan talk about so many of his projects and this is one of uh, hearing him talk about this project is one of the most personal sort of uh, presentations I've heard from him what was it that drew you to finally sort of I don't know if if you've had opportunities before to do so but to finally join the Ryan Murphy TV verse and and this amazing cast of characters I mean, I don't know that I have to say anything other than Ryan Murphy. Um, you know, I mean, um, a- actually what had happened was my, my friend who is working with him right now, John Robin Bates, who is an extraordinary, uh, writer and whose play I did on Broadway, uh, Other Desert Cities, um, Robbie wrote to me and he said, there is this piece and, uh, you know, they're going to talk to you about it. And he said, you, you, he said, I love these people. This is a, an amazing, you know, producing team of Brad Simpson and Nina Jacobson and these people. And I have had friends who have worked with Ryan and, you know, they sing his praises. And that's what I was talking to you about before about his specificity of each character and what he knows he wants and the clarity that he comes from. And in particular with this story, because of my advocacy, and I'll tell you an interesting story, and it would it will inform you about um, who Ryan is and why I have so longed to work with him. First of all, you know, John Robin Bates is just amazing, and he wasn't writing on this, but he was writing on something. He's writing on something else for them. But I I had to do an entire schedule change. 
um, uh, when this came up. And I had all these things that were planned. And one of the things that was planned was on September 7th, they wanted me in L.A. to do that day of costume and makeup and hair and nails and the whole thing. And I said to them, I simply cannot change that. I am speaking at the opening of the AIDS conference in Washington, D.C. for the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. It was that team, Ryan and his team, that said, of course you will do that. We will see you on the 8th. So, you know, you don't often get the opportunity to work with people like that who really understand your advocacy and your life and the things that matter in the world and will accommodate for that. So to say by way of saying it has been my supreme honor to be part of that team and um, just really appreciated all of them so much. You know, Orion has talked a lot about how this show feels so vital right now, given maybe the the climate of our country right now. And and I'm curious to you as someone who has watched this issue closely for so long, what about our current climate gives you hope in terms of the treatment of the LGBT community and and what are you frustrated to see not uh, have changed or regressed as much as you wished? What I still see that is deeply upsetting to me is the fact that we are still living in a culture that holds the LGBTQ community in as the other, the prejudice against the community, uh, in particular, um, the transgender issue with the military, uh, which has been resolved, but that it even came up um, was unnecessary, inappropriate. Um, the transgender community has been fighting to save their lives and other people's lives forever. No one knows more and better about how to fight and survive. The fact that that even came up was deeply disturbing to me. The fact that I still see my friends being, as I said before, dismissed, discounted, vilified, um, that I feel deep despair for our our humanity, who we are as human beings in the world, that we make people the other um, and shove them aside and discount their lives. The that is so um, deeply upsetting for me. What gives me hope is people like Ryan Murphy. What gives me hope is the LGBTQ community standing up in their real, authentic selves because they have something to teach us in the straight community about authenticity, about how to be courageous and brave in showing who we truly are in the world. When you are in a community like that and you have to stand up um, in, in front of your God and your family and your religion and your world and say, I am this person, not the person you think I should be. I am myself. The demonstration of that to me is glorious and gives me great hope and great faith that at some point in time, this will all be turned around and we will be reminded that we are all together as human beings and that our humanity and our graciousness and our kindness toward everyone is of tantamount importance. 
Thank you so much for, for talking with me and for your great work. Thank you so much. I really am happy to talk to you. And until next week, what have you been covering on VF.com, Richard, that people should go check out? Well, I just got back from the Sundance Film Festival, so I have some reviews uh, from, from there, which saw some good stuff, some good independent stuff to kick off 2018. Uh, and then, um, personally, I would like to plug that on February 6th, so next week, uh, a book that I wrote called All We Can Do Is Wait, a young adult novel, uh, will be published and available in stores to buy. So please go out and get a copy or order one on Amazon, which I guess is what most people do these days. Um. I'm so excited for that. Uh, if you want to follow me, well, you can follow Richard on Twitter at Rylaws. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Um, I'm covering sort of all things pop culture and television on Vanity Fair. I've got some great coverage of the Marvel film Black Panther coming up, which I'm very excited about. Uh, and mostly, though, I'll just be reading Richard's book. So that's where you can find me until uh, our next episode. This episode was engineered by Danielle Roth and produced by Dave Gonzalez. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki. Yes. It's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mel. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's a walk. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>